Noel, how are you? I'm going well, mate. Yourself? I'm very well. It's nice to speak to you. Oh, yes, spoken I've never spoken to you before. I've read a lot of your stuff uh, through the years, just stuff that you've uh, right. put out. That's been really interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, this is a, this is a thrill for me to speak to you. I can assure you. So um, is that right? It is. Yes, <laughs> I mean that honestly. Uh, so I've got my little tape recorder here. Let me press record, and we'll have, okay. a, we'll have a chat. Here we go. And this is a thrill for me. I'm speaking to Noel Judkins. Hello, Noel. G'day, Red. Now it's a thrill for me because. <laughs> Oh, a couple of reasons. Yeah, you've got a connection with my father when he started. Yes. Your your surname is a famous name in Richmond history. Yes. And, uh, you know, you're arguably one of the great recruiters of all time Oh, as thank well. you. Appreciate that. So I've got sort of three topics, I guess, to, to, to attack you on, basically. Yeah. Let's well, talk about your surname first, Judkins. Your father was Stan. Yes. Tell us, uh, for those who aren't aware of Stan... Um, Tell us about Stan and his contribution to Richmond. Well, he started in 28, yep. um, 1928. He was refused a, refused a clearance in 1927 from Northcote. Um, he used to play at Greensboro before that as a kid, brought up uh, with some stepbrothers. All right. And his stepbrothers, uh, on Stan's arrival home from school, they'd be standing in the front yard with a cricket ball. And they would throw it as hard as they could to him. And if he didn't catch it, they'd go and whack him around the ear. So he learned to catch the ball pretty well. <laughs> so when he went to Northcote at about 1926, at a, uh, 19 years of age, mm. the uh, Northcote cricketers were training on the ground before the footballers at the start of the year. Oh, I see, yeah. And he used to get out in the field because um, <laughs> they used to didn't have nets at the side. They'd play, uh, you know, um, hit the ball around from the middle of the ground and I, I think it, I can't remember who it exactly was but I've got in my mind it was Jack Ryder it was someone who was going away with the Australian team and uh, in the near future mm. and they said and he went to him and he said um, if I could take a fieldsman as one of the party I'd take you oh wow so dad so dad um, became very adept with his hands um, he, was, uh, he was five foot five and a half and nine stone nine, um, which was pretty small. Yeah. Um, but he was really quick, so he got across the ground really, really, really uh, quickly. Played on the wing. Mm. He said the best wingman he ever saw played on the other wing. It was Alan Geddes, who was captain for a while, yeah. captain premiership team, left footer, reportedly broke Jack Titus's ribs with a stab pass. Um, he said he was the best kicker, and, and Geddes would walk over to the other side of the ground because Dad always played on the grandstand wing, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but Geddes always played on the other wing. They didn't swap sides. And Geddes would walk over to his team uh, opponent, I should say, and say, fair or foul. And if he said fair, he'd play him fair. If he say, said foul, he'd play him rough. Goodness. So he gave, him, gave his opponent the choice. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Dad played on the other wing. And um, Jack Dyer in later years, it was actually at Dad's funeral in 1986, he came to the funeral and he stood in the lounge room and he, everybody was just in awe of Jack, all my mates and everything. And Jack said, I just want to tell you a little story about Stan. And uh, he told this little story. He said, I arrived at Richmond, nine, I think it was 1931, as a 17-year-old, and Stan was my mentor. And um, he uh, looked after me for the first couple of years. He said, I went on a, uh, a trip to Perth in the train. Stan was a drinker, so he took me down the back of the train and I became a drinker. And the other guy that looked after him was Charlie Callender, oh, who yes. was Dad's best mate. And they can remember giving Jack two beers and then they'd walk him back to the sleeper and they would tuck him in. Now, can, can you imagine tucking in Jack, Jack. Dyer? <laughs> tucking and in the Dad's giant. That he used to, every, the three nights it took him and they used to take him and tuck him in. Goodness. And just on Jack, I'll get back a little bit earlier than that, but just on Jack, um, Dad said, and he always swore by it, uh, and they were good mates. They didn't see each other very often, you know, but he was good mates, and he said if Dyer hadn't have done his knee... I think it might have been 1932 as an 18-year-old. Right. Yeah. 
He said, I reckon he would have been the best ever. He, was, he said he could do everything I could do. He said he could twist and turn and jump and mark and kick. He, he said he was just, he was like a five foot ten bloke, but he was about six foot two and he's really strong. Right. He said the poor bugger just did his knees yeah. and he just had to change his game and he still played three hundred games. Yeah, and that was in thirty two. You're right, and that affected him, you know, throughout his career. That knee, um, and he wore the knee braces as well. Well, I, I think, like Dad, Dad had a hurt his knee and um, Dyer told him to take two pennies to his cartilages and strap them up. So what I what I didn't ask Jack, but people, other people told me that he, he got two pennies and he strapped them under that big bandage he had and he strapped the two pennies to his cartilages. So I don't know what it did. I suppose they were supposed to slip out or something, but I, I don't know about that. But um, yeah. he... Uh, but- Stan Dyer, was, stood up, Dyer stood up at the funeral and he said, I'll just tell you something about him. He said, he always played, he's called, he said, I called him the Johnny Ray of football. Right. And Johnny Ray, long before your time and sort of about your dad's and my dad's time, he was, he used to go on the uh, on the stage and he was a real actor and he's performing, he, he was a, a singer and yeah. he used to cry and Johnny Ray used to cry this song and that, uh, Jack called Stand the Johnny Ray of football, and he stood up and said this at this funeral. He said, "As a matter of fact, he's the only player I've ever heard, I've ever seen, or watched that had a song written about him." And he said, "I'll sing you the song." You can imagine Jack standing up at a funeral singing a song. He says, and the, he used to run down the wing past the well, now the Jack Dyer stand is called. And he said the crowd would lean over the fence as Dad ran past and they'd say, number six is Judkins, isn't he a flyer? He runs so fast at times he sets the grass on fire. And they'd sing that to him every time he ran past in a tune, which I don't know the tune. So it was a bit different in those days. Is that why he liked running along the um, the um, grandstand side? Is that why he played on the grandstand side? That's why he played... Well, Dyer said that's why he played on the grandstand side because he was a showman and he used to show up... They actually, they nicknamed him the Tin Hair. That's right, yes. And if the people that listen to this and they don't know what we're talking about, well, the Greyhound, in the Greyhound racing in those days, the Greyhound was a, a Tin Hair, dressed up as a as a, as a, a hare or a rabbit, and it used to go around the outside fence, not the inside fence. So they call him the Tin Hair because he, he was that far in front of the, the chasing pack. that <laughs> he was... He was nicknamed the, the Tin Hair. Now, Stan became the first Richmond Brownlow medalist mm. in a very famous uh, count where there was a, a three-way tie. Um, but he was given the Brownlow medal, and then many years later, decades later, they gave a retrospective one. Did he that, always want the other two to get a retrospective medal? That's a really good question, Rep, because Dad was... Absolutely dirty all his life that the other two guys didn't get the medal at he, the same time. Was he really? Oh, he said. I he said I really respect getting it, you know. Um, but he said Hopkins is nearly one of the best players I've ever seen, and I think they awarded a special medal for Alan Hopkins sometime during his career for finishing so high in the Brownlow so often or something like that. <laughs> and he said Collier. He said Collier was just a dirty little rat, but a really, really good player. And he just loved both of them. Mm. And um, I, t- I think it was 89 they got their medals, or 87, right. yeah. was it? Yeah, 89? I think 89, yeah. I think it, yeah. Well, I can't remember if Harry Colley was had passed away or either of them had passed away, but I rang them both up. Now, I can't remember if I spoke to them directly or their wives, yep. but they were so thrilled. Whoever I spoke to, I just can't remember. Mm. I think it was both of them. Mm. And th- I think they were, they were both alive, yeah. I think they both spoke to me because Harry used to go and sit on the bench at training at Collingwood up until his last days, virtually, and you know sit and watch the training, you know, with Bobby Rose coaching or you know whoever was coaching, and um, dad, dad was dad was dead three years by then, but mum and dad used to go to Queensland every year by car up to um, Shoot Harbour. And he always used to call in and see Alan Hopkins on the way oh, up lovely. around Albury somewhere, Coral or one of those. Oh, yeah, he used to call in. He just loved him. He he said he was slow, but he had and he had tangled feet that you know his knees, bow legs and all that. But he said no one could lay a hand on him. He said he was a genius player. <laughs> he said one of the best he'd ever seen. He uh, in that year Richmond 
actually omitted him near the yeah. end of this season after the uh, round yeah. for the round he fifteen missed, match. Yeah, I think he missed three or four, oh, three games, Correct. and then came back for the finals oh. and was one of the best players in the finals. Yeah, he he played twelve games. Yeah, the the game, uh, the round fourteen match, um, he played, and the report indicates that he was having difficulty with the heavy turf. So obviously. Um, there was maybe a lot of rain, and you know he wasn't as formidable at that, in yeah. that game as possible. And he was omitted the following week, round fifteen. Played a couple of the reserve games, would you believe? And then you're right, comes back into the final. Um, I think he might have missed the first two or three games that year too. He did, yeah. He came in about round three. So yeah, he had a had an ankle injury, I think. It's from, quite an incredible season. Yeah, one game, one game, a, a one a one vote a game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> His Brownlow changes the system. But he did, but I think, oh, and you'd know this being a historian, I think he did top the Richmond voting in the Brownlow for at least three years. Yeah, um, years. It might have been more, but I, I, I think it was three years. So it wasn't just a one-year wonder. Now, he, he was pretty good. And many decades later, I think his, his Brownlow came up for auction, did it not? Yes, it did. Is that something we can talk about or not? Ah, oh, no, let it go. Let it's it go. At, okay. It's at Richmond. I was going to say Richmond. It, it's, it's at Richmond. It's made yeah, a spiritual it home. A let's a, call it. There's a bit of a family thing, yeah. and we said, "Look, okay. you know, we can't all this. It's, what's the use of it sitting in a bloody drawer somewhere? Okay. It's you know, whack it on display. So yeah. Now, did, did well? I'm glad it's at Richmond anyway. It's you know. Yeah, well, he would home. be. That's he would have given it to him anyway. The, if he had a stayed alive, he, he never wanted to have it in a drawer. He'd take it. He'd go out for a function or something. He'd take it with him and get him to hand it round. <laughs> he said, oh, go on, you have a look at this." You know, uh, that's a, a, a funny man. A very funny man. I'm guessing. I'm guessing he. I mean, you were lucky in, in in the sense that he was able. I'm guessing to tell you a heap of stories from his time as a player. Would that be right? Uh well, the, the first. The, the, I've got a story if you, which is rather. Um, unique um, and, and it's how Dad became a mentor really to Jack Dyer when he got to Richmond in 28 um, whoever was coach it might have been Checker yep, I'm not sure yep, no, it was. and um, he allocated George Rudolph <laughs> who was a bit of an enigma um, to be Dad's mentor and he came up and sat beside Dad from the first night and they wouldn't have had a long pre-season those days let's say it was six weeks well, he never spoke to him once. <laughs> he just ran around with him. He worked with him. He did exercises with him. He kicked to him. He did all the training right beside him for six weeks and never spoke to him, never even said hello, goodbye or anything. So they went to the jumper presentation night at the town hall and they went and the jumpers were being presented and Dad was going to get number six and, of course, George Rudolph was sitting beside him and Dad had bought, Dad was a tailor and he'd made a brand new suit. Oh, wow. And his boss said, yeah, just make yourself a suit for the night. So number six, Stan Judkins and Dad leaped up, you know, with all joy, I've got me six. And of course, Rudolph grabbed a, um, a bunch of grapes and put them on the seat. And Dad sat down and all these grapes squashed all over him. And from that moment... Rudolph never stopped yakking and laughing at him. He just, it was like a trigger point. Oh, he awesome. said every, every night he'd come in and say, oh, the grapes stand, there's your suit, and all this sort of stuff, and everybody was laughing. But, oh. um, yeah, so he Goodness. put a bunch of grapes under Dad's pants, uh, under his bum, yeah. and squashed and He had to go home with all these bloody wet pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. Were you privy to... Uh, teammates of his dropping by the house and that sort of thing? Was that a common um, occurrence? Uh, look, uh, when he came out of the, the army in 1945, um, he was really crook. Now, to this day, I don't know if he was prisoner of war, never spoke about it, but he was really sick. And um, he didn't do a lot um, footy-wise, and he was sort of just, just able to go to work virtually. He was mm. crook in the stomach and couldn't eat a lot of stuff and... He was in hospital for a long time, and then about 47, well, maybe 48, he had appendicitis, and they whipped him into um, Heidelberg Repat, and, they, and it was a Tuesday, and they didn't operate till a Saturday, mm -hmm. and it burst and became peritonitis. Mm -hmm. He was in there for eight weeks, 
that made him worse. And then he came out, and being a sort of hypos, hyper sort of bloke, he got someone from Sandringham Football Club got him. So he went and coached the... No, sorry. He went with another bloke and started the, the VFA under-19s by forming a team at Sandringham. Oh. And he started that team, and all the other teams started up. So he, he was one of the inaugural blokes to get the VFA under-19s up and running. And then in 49, uh, Len Toyne, who was a much-travelled footballer around country football and played some uh, uh, VFA, he got, he got um, pissed off by people belting him all the time. So he walked out and went to Melbourne. And Dad took over coaching the Sandringham Seniors That's and, right, yeah, uh, for the rest of the year, and they offered him the job next year, but he wasn't he wasn't well enough to do it. Right. So he and he, you've probably heard of the famous East Sandringham Football Club. I have heard of them. Well, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, they're under fifteen and under seventeen nowadays, but in those days they were under eighteen. So he took over the under eighteens a couple of years later. Right. And uh, probably the most famous player he ever coached in that team was Jeff Crouch. Did he really? Yeah, Coach Crouchy. And I used to, as a little toddler, I used to go and sit at the front um, where the photo has been taken with my little beret and my footy on, and with my footy beret and my footy jumper and my footy in my lap, and I would be the little mascot, yeah. So he coached them for a while. Um, he coached a couple of teams, didn't he? Yeah, and then he went to Brighton and the amateurs, and they were hopeless, and he got them into the first semi-final. They'd never been in the finals. Right. And he... Took a few players with him from Sandringham under-19s and play, people he knew. He got them into the first semi-final and they were that thrilled. And on the Tuesday night, they were training at Elstonwick Park and he was running around and this mighty loud crack went out and everybody thought someone had shot a 303 and it was Dad's kneecap smashing. Oh. And they rushed him to the Alfred and they... Uh, opened it up and it all just come out as sand virtually so he, the day they got beaten by a couple of points in the semi-final he was laid up in hospital with no kneecap in his in his knee <laughs> yeah and all that was you know he had a great doctor a uh, great friend of his and he just said that's all a result of all the stuff that went on in the war like malnutrition and oh, all really? that sort of stuff yeah he blamed it on that yeah he said look your bones aren't good enough and yeah. So, and he didn't make vitamin B up. He had no vitamin B replenishment, so he used to have to go and get an injection every fortnight for, for vitamin B, whacked into him and all that sort of stuff. He had everything wrong with him, but he never whinged. He was always happy. and um, a tip, he, was a, he was a salesman. He was a t- terrific salesman. Yeah. He it, enlisted in January 1942 at the age of 35. 35, yeah, I, I've actually looked that up, yep. and there's two different things. It says he went in 42 in one thing, and then on the other thing it says he went in in 39. Oh, really? Okay. Which is really, well, when he left Richmond, he had a really bad ankle, and he didn't play a lot of games in 35, and 36, his ankle was really bad. And he said, look, i just got to get a, give it away, mm. and he went to Albury, and he coached Albury to a premiership in the first year. Right. And then there was no the work closed down or something because it was the depression. So he went to um, oh, what's the town just where the Lionel Rose comes from, just out of Warrigal. Um, anyway, down there, mm-hmm. and he took them to runners up. And then that there was no job there, so he went to Hamilton, coached them to a premiership, and then he went in the army. Right. So he so coached two premierships in three years, and and he was he was stationed up here. I live in Palm Cove, which is. 30k's north of Cairns yeah and um he's he was up here in the army training the the, uh, the troops up in the tablelands and uh he was like a he was a sergeant like a drill master right. and, he, uh, and then he went to Borneo yes. and I think that's where he got crook yeah according to a, a publication here he was in Borneo for six months in 1945 yeah, well, he got crooked there. It must have been something he ate, or I don't know. Yeah. But he wasn't well when he came out. Uh, so you were born in what year, not? 45. All right. So Two years before your old man. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, 23 months older than him. He's March, isn't he? He is, yes. Yeah. Spot on. Absolutely spot on. So I'm, guess, I'm guessing there was no other team that you were going to try and play for, was there, than Richmond? Well, 
we lived six houses outside. We lived in Black Rock, in Bluff Road, Black Rock. We were six houses outside St Kilda Zone. I played for Black, played for East Sandringham, then went to Black Rock under seventeens, and we used to always play in the St Kilda Lightning Premierships down at Junction Oval. And it was really funny because I always played well on in those games. And St Kilda, were, oh yeah, you know, yeah. come to St Kilda, come to St Kilda, and they used to hang around and come down and see us and all that, watch us play and talk to us after games and stuff. And then. Dad said, um, oh, look, there's a bloke coach in Melbourne under 19. I can't think of his name. He wants you to come in there. So I went out a couple of training runs there. But uh, I really wanted to go to Richmond and uh, if I was good enough. And um, GR had just taken over as secretary in 63. Mm-hmm. I think he coached the thirds in 62. And Geelong beat him in a final. Um, I think I think Gio was coach. Anyway, he came down to the house in Blackrock, and Dad didn't sort of know him or much, or, you know, sort of heard of him and that. And he sat down and he said, "Look, we want you to." And he, you know, oh, did you were you around when Gio was I only, alive? I only met him once, right at the end of his life. Well, he had a very distinctive talking style. Are you going to impersonate it for us again, please? I could, Go I on. could, but I'm not going to do it. It's like, ah, oh, coco, that sort of thing, yeah? yeah he, he never said any four-letter swear words or anything like that. Never, ever, ever. And, but he'd say, by Jesus Christ, son, you're going all right down at Black Rock. And he'd go, wow, well, I'd really like to see you at the Tigers. As a matter of fact, Dad's going to get his life membership in a couple of weeks, and I'd like you to come along. So it was Ronnie Branton's Ronnie Branton's retirement, and and my start at Richmond. So so I went in there, and and Graham was fantastic to me. Like he just really, really looked after me really well. Yeah. But he, and he told you the truth. He just told you whether you're any good or whatever. Yeah. And on that particular night, <laughs> Dad just happened to say, "Oh well, Graham, you're not coaching him anymore. Who's going to be the coach?" <laughs> <laughs> and Graham said, oh, Ray Jordan. And Dad went, what? Ray Jordan? That little mongrel, you know? And I said, I said, oh, that would be right, Dad. You know, don't worry about it. He said, Ray Jordan. Of course, he was 27, Slug. And, yeah. you know, well, I'm 17. <laughs> and Dad going, well, what's this kid going to learn? Anyway, uh, Graham convinced him that he'd, he'd be good and, you know, he'd played with him. Uh, himself in the no, under-19s and all that sort of stuff. So, no, it all worked out. And, you know, long story short, in this area, we, we finished up great mates, Slug and I, and he actually spoke at my 50th, and I, I employed him when I went to Collingwood when he lost the job at at uh, the Sandingham Dragons, or Pran Dragons, whatever it was at the time, and mm-hmm. he worked for me as a spotter even when he had his stroke. <laughs> <laughs> which which was which was unbelievably funny because he's a funny man, as you know, yes. just the funniest bloke, and, and uh, had, had, had the colourful language as well. Oh yeah, well he, he wasn't that bad in those days. Like it, that that sort of developed as he as he got more frustrated with people, and you know. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed him um, in the under nineteens uh, in sixty three. Uh, we had Vinnie Crow, who was a good player. Yeah. Johnny Rolson, who who uh, went on and played two premierships. Well, Johnny played for East Malvern, and they'd beaten us in the preliminary final at, uh, at at Bentley against Black Rock. And I, all of a sudden, the next year, I'm playing with with Big John. <laughs> He's a terrific bloke. And of course, you get to the club, and you, know, you sort of run around the under 19s, and this little pimply fellow with sort of funny airs running around. But I couldn't catch him. That was your old man. <laughs> Like, he was just turned 16 when I met him, and I'm sort of just about to turn 18. But we became really good friends with a guy, another guy called Peter McLaren. Yeah. don't know if your dad's ever mentioned Peter. I have. Peter I, saw, at, I saw Peter at uh, Tommy Hafey's funeral. Oh, right, right. He, he turned up, yeah. yeah. He's a great fella. Yeah. And uh, he lives down Warrnambool. I, I saw him at the Warrnambool races many years ago, and I haven't seen him. He's got a smart little horse running around at the moment. Yeah. But he... Um, Macker and uh, Barbara and I'd had, I had I met Gail that year a few months after I'd met your dad. Mm-hmm. We've been married fifty one years, and and uh, Peter's still with Barbara. I'm pretty sure. And Dad used to well living in Lennox Street. Yes, um, that's right. We we'd go after the footy. I'd go home, pick up Gail if she wasn't at the footy, and then I'd go and pick Dad up at Lennox Street, and then. 
Peter lived in the houses that joins on the Berry Street, runs into Punt Road behind, you know, 200 metres from the ground. So we'd pick up pick up Pete and we'd go out to Pasco Vale and pick up Barbara and we'd go out. I had, I had a mini minor. So we'd go on the front, Macca and, and Barb and your dad in the back. Gosh. And we, we'd go to some place, like some party or something. One night we went to Michael Green's and somewhere else and we'd go to a dance or we'd go something and, you know, dad was pretty quiet. Um, never said boo to a goose, but we, we sort of half looked after him, and because he won the best and fairest that year. Yes, that's right. Yeah, at sixteen, and, and you know about the story about the um, the grand final, other uh, sorry, the semi final on the MCG. You, you would have. Is that where he injures himself in the first few seconds? Yeah. I, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Do you want to hear another story first, mm. which is rather ridiculous, and I'll probably get kicked in the ass for telling you. So, so. We get. I've been playing in the reserves, and I've been playing quite well. And um, anyway, it's coming up to the end of the season, and they wanted all the thirds back. Um, oh no, sorry, no, that's. A, I'm getting confused. So we, I've been playing in the seconds. So I come back about round five or six or seven, sixty-three, mm-hmm. and we get to Brunswick Oval, and it is a quagmire. Like I mean, you can't. They had they had big planks laid out on the ground for the guy to walk out and mark the centre circle. And I just said, oh, geez, I'm right today, because I was slow, but strong, and I didn't mind sort of going and getting the ball. I thought, geez, this will be all right, I'll be okay. I'll go good today. So I get into the rooms, and I get changed, and I look at the board, and my name's not in the team, and I've just come back from the reserves, and I didn't have a big head or anything. I just said, oh, shit, I'm not in the team. So I snuck into the corner and put my civvies back on, and Slug comes at me, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, why aren't you stripped? I said, Slug, I'm not in the team. He said, what? And he looked around at Jeff O'Horan, who was the team manager. It was Tommy O'Horan's son, played with Dad. And he said, oh, that's right. That's you there. Dimitina, that's you. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, well, look, you're about the same size. And if anybody knows Dimitina... They won't sort of worry about it. It's pretty muddy. So anyway, yeah. so I go out. I have a ripper day. Had a real good day. So two weeks later, we're playing Geelong at Punt Road. And he comes up and he says, hey, that worked all right the other week. We've got to qualify Frank for two games for the finals. He can't play because he's at school. We'll do it again, eh? <laughs> so I said, yeah, all right. doesn't worry me. I couldn't care less. You know, it's just, no, I, you didn't have to sign anything. So I get stripped. And I think it was number eight or something. Mm. And in walks the umpire to check the boots and the hands. And it's a mate of mine. Oh. A real good, like I mean, a real good mate that I used to play pickup games since I was about eight at Black Rock Footy Ground. And he was a couple of years, three years older. And he used to be the captain of one of the teams. And he'd always pick me. And we, and we went, I went to school with his brother. Not going to mention any names because it would get him into trouble. So he checks the boots and the hands. And he says, You'll be right today, Judd. He said, I'll. Um, I'll look after you. So I kicked three in the first half. Oh, had a real good day. Best game I've played for ages. Anyway, and he comes out, comes in for a, you know a cup of tea after the game in in the what you'd call the social room with the holes in the floor and everything. So we get in there, and he and uh, the umpire says to me, um, "Hey, I went to give you three votes, but your names are on the team sheet." <laughs> this is. This is senior club, you yeah. know, and I went, oh, yeah. So I, I said, oh, look, we're trying to qualify. He said, oh, don't worry about it. I'm not going to do anything about it. So, oh. so, so they got to the end of the season, and um, I did a right. I'm not going to say I did real well in the Morris Medal, but <laughs> I did, I did pretty well. But Frankie Dimitrina got five votes. <laughs> <laughs> you might have won it. I'm not saying that. You could have, saying very that. Technically, you might have actually been a Morris Medal winner. <laughs> uh, the winner was a kid called John Schramm from Geelong, and he was a, sort of a bawdy-shedded little fellow, good player. And years and years later, David Whedon, who you'd know, mm. and Mickey Bastian, who played at Richmond, they're great mates, and we used to get a house down at Lawn. And David Whedon said one year, went down there for about eight or nine years every, every between Christmas and New Year. And we're sitting there one day, and David said, oh, I've got a bloke coming around for dinner tonight, tomorrow night. He's a mate of mine for three days. 
Tom, name's John Schramm. <laughs> I said, you're joking, joking. So I told Schramm the story, and I sort of, I didn't indicate that, you know, I'd finished up the ladder. I just said, oh, I played all right that year, and Frank got five votes. With the ones, yes. Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. Anyway, we got, we get the great, uh, the, uh, the first semi on the MCG. I think it was the first time that the under-19s had played a semi-final on the MCG. I think it was. It was Geelong versus Richmond. Mm. And Kevin was in the centre with John Ronaldson and me and oh, I don't know who else. It might have been Vinnie Crow or something like that. And we had Dickie Weston in the forward pocket and Frankie Dimitina in the other forward the pocket. The real Sorry. Frankie Dimitina, we should say. Yeah, the real yep. one. He's there, yep. And... A guy called Ian Byers, who was a very good player, really strong, was playing half-back flank. He'd done his knee in about round four, hadn't played since, and they wanted to see if he was going to measure up for the next year because he looked like being a, a, a VFL player. So they played him. So the first bounce goes up. This is only from memory, and your dad would know it better than me. The first bounce goes up. I think Big Johnny got the knockout and went to Kevin, and a bloke went bang and hit him on the hip. Mm. And he went down, and he, he had a cyst or something on his hip, is that right? Yeah, and he didn't realise at the time. Yeah, they, so they carried him off on a bloody stretcher, and by half-time, Jack dies down at the bloody hospital, you know, because yeah. they, you know, they just love, love Kev, you know, they knew he was going to be a good player. So the umpire rebounds the ball, hmm. and this is only from memory, so it would be distorted. The ball went over to the half-back flank. Ian Vise ran for the ball, twisted and did his knee. <laughs> Was and no kick had been kicked, <laughs> so that he's off, no interchange. So I go back down to the forward pocket, you know, five ten minutes later, and the little back pocket player won't mention any names. He goes bang and kicks me in the ankle, right. and I'm hobbling around. Then he runs the same bloke runs through Frankie Dimitrina. Frank's got bloody concussion, the first of many. Yes, and Dickie Weston slain on the ground, and the bloke jumps in a dick. And knees him in the knee, and he's stuffed, and we lose by a point. Oh. With three, three, the three little blokes all injured. What a game. So that that wasn't, and 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 Graham had stood up and done one of his eulogies before the game, <laughs> which yeah. no one had ever heard. Like all the under nine, and they go, "Oh God, what's, what's this? this?" And he's he's got the yellow horde coming across Punt Road, and who's who's going to stand up in the trenches and fight the fight the yellow peril off and all this? Oh and we go. Our allies were bugging out. But that was Graham, how he, he sort of did it, you know. Whatever happened to Ian Vyers? Don't know. He, was, he came from East Melbourne, if I remember. Oh, did he? But uh, he'd be an interesting guy to talk to, as a matter yes. of fact, if he's still around. He's now, a good bloke. Rough as, rough as hell, but a really good guy, yeah. So, um, oh, look, all the blokes were good blokes, you know. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't reach a senior team, is that right? No, nah, played okay. in the reserves. Did you play the play the reserves? Start in the reserves, probably. Uh, probably towards the end of '63, maybe. No, no, man. Is they doing rounds? Probably round fourteen. I think one of the first games I played, Paddy was playing, Paddy Ganone, <laughs> and um, he was coming back from injury or something. And I played the. I started in the forward pocket on a. a he asked some people plus the old man about a bloke called Charlie Evans. They called him Charlie, my boy, and in fair dinkum, he would have been six foot across the rear end. Played for Victoria, um, and I started off on him, and the ball came down about three or four times, and I just couldn't get near the ball. And he said, what are you doing? This is about halfway through the first quarter. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, he said, stop trying to body me. Lead on me. Duck back on me. Push the ball on the ground and change direction. Do something like that and you'll get the ball. This is him. This is his opponent. They're about six in front, by the way. So um, we get up the other end. That was down the railway and we get up the punt road end, like um, where the scoreboard is now. Mm-hmm. And he's nudging me to run and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and we go off at half time and we're about 12 goals to three down or something like that. And Dickie Harris was coach, who oh, Dad yeah. had played many games with. And Dickie was... He must. I think, from memory, I think, I think he was coaching because Bull Richardson, Bull Richardson had been appointed captain coach of the seconds. I don't know if it was that year, but it was one year. But anyway, Dick was coaching, 
Mm. And Dick was pulling his hair out, and he's up on standing up on the the suit as they did on the bench, you know, where, you, where the players sit and get changed. He's standing up there, and he's ranting and ranting and raving, and Footscray had been running riot, and he says, "Hey, you fellas, they're cutting you with ribbons with those hand parcels. You are cut. They are cutting you with ribbons with the with those hand parcels." Well, everybody just broke up. We were just cracked up laughing, you know. And um, we just went out five minutes later and they just absolutely wiped us. So after the game, I'm standing in front of the stand, I think with Barry Teague or Peter McLaren or someone, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd come off from Charlie Evans wanders up. Yeah. And uh, there wasn't a big crowd. There would have been you know, 20,000, I suppose not 35 or something, and we're standing in front of the stand. And to, to, in my memory, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I, I've got a vision of him standing there talking to me about my game and he's got a 26-ounce bottle of bloody Richmond Lager in his hand and he's sculling it. Now, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I've got this vision of him doing that. Now, he might deny it if he ever hears this podcast. But that's the sort of thing that, you know, remember. And then I went to Sandingham in 66 and he was playing with Williamstown. I've gone down to the forward pocket after five minutes or something on the ball and here's Charlie Evans and I kicked three of him in the first quarter. <laughs> and he remembered me. But he didn't. I think that was his last year of footy. I think he gave it away after that never played again. He played for Victoria. Jeez, he must, he oh, bloody hell. Player, he was yeah. a real good player, but he just wasn't dedicated, you know. And Dickie Harris was the reserves coach. He had been the reserves coach for quite a few years at that stage. Oh, but he, in the, in the mid-60s, or just before the mid-60s, uh, Len Smith has his heart attack. Yeah. And the club has to shuffle around people like Billy Wilson, Jack Titus, Dickie Harris, sort of swapping the reserves coaching role to sort of fill in the void, you know, help out in the seniors and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, I was still there then. Did you meet Len Smith? Oh, shit, yeah. I, I used to... Well, Slug had come up to you on Monday night sometimes and said and say to you, well, look, you're a chance this week in the twos. Mm. What about training tomorrow night? I was, I was saying, well, shit, do they know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll let them know tomorrow. They've asked me. And two or three of us would go and train with the seniors. Well, I think Len started in 64 or mm. 5. Mm-hmm. No, 64. 64, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, just to go and train with Len Smith, you know, other than Slug, and you'd go back and he'd Slug would say, what do he do, what do he say, you know, what do, what's he talking about in the group? Because Slug would go and watch training and stuff just to learn, because at that stage he's only 28 or 29. And he and Len Smith was all about, the thing I remember vividly was chase your handball and chase your kick. And no one had ever heard of it. What do you mean? Well, as soon as you handball, you follow your handball. Because if there's a fumble or whatever, or you can get it back, you'll get a running game going. Now, if you kick it, if you kick it, and it's not 60 metres down the track, chase your kick, be there, get the numbers up, you know, get three and four where the ball is, and we're going what? So you, did, you started to play like that, hmm. and um, I think Graham and um, and the president, oh jeez, can't think of his name, little little lawyer, right um, fat. Ray Dunn, I think they did a sensational job of getting Len Smith there. Because people, you know, people in those days, even though Norm had coached all those premierships at um, at Melbourne, yeah. a lot of people said that Norm Smith, uh, Len Smith was a better coach. Mm. Now, th- that's being a bit wild, but it was sort of saying, well, he is very, very good because, you know, Norm Smith was a genius. But, he, you know, that was a really good big thing. That was the start of Richmond... Graham going into being secretary, and, I, and I, was, I, I could see this as a kid. Graham going in to be secretary and Len Smith coming into the club, that was the start of something happening. And then they also Graham, moved the club to the MCG. Well, that was that was the biggest thing that Dunn did. Yeah. You know, he got him. he and whoever, I don't know, Al Border, whoever was there that had influence, they got him to the MCG. And, of course, the Melbourne Creek Club thought that was sensational because they were going to get Massive crowds every week because Richmond was just starting to go, just starting to go okay in '65. I think we might have finished fifth or something. But he, you know, like um, Graham was, Graham was just 
the most innovative bloke. Like for a bloke that never drank, never smoked, um, you know, fought six rounders at the stadium, so I'm told, was ducks at Geelong Grammar, and he's, how you going, mate? But we ran a function one night, and I was standing at the front, at the door, um, I don't know, it's probably not the same now, as you come in the middle of the, the Jack Dyer stand, and you, you, my uh, later on in later years, my office was just inside there with Sheeds, and then Charlie's, Charlie and Dusty's um, yep. probably room. So it was just there. We were standing at the door taking 10 shillings to come in or something to a function. And these two guys have come up, must have been 25 or 30, and they were thugs. And they stand there and they started pushing their way in. And God, we're standing there saying, hey, listen, you know, buzz off, you know. We're not. And Graham just had to come down from his office, um, which was on the other side of the boardroom. So he'd walk down that little corridor through the change rooms and he's got to the the tea where Charlie's office was to go right into the round of the um, social room, as you want to call it. And he saw us standing at the door and he says, I cry, son, what's going on here, young fella? And I said, oh, these blokes are you know, just pushing their way in. And they told him, to bu- you know, they told the two blokes that I buzz off, squirt, you know, because Graham is only five foot eight or something. So he, he just eased his way through us and he just walked up to them and they came forward and he just went, bang, bang, with two punches, and they just ran off across the road, across the uh, Yarra Park. Um, Macca and I just went, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding about that. that That's he was, incredible. He was, he was just... That's incredible. He was just... Look, he, he, he probably... Well, you know, um, he, his great mate Paddy's passed on, and... I love Patty and we were good friends, but, you know, you wouldn't hear in the, about Graham. But Graham got the club, made the club in the late 60s and probably destroyed it in the 80s. Um, didn't get on with uh, quite a few people um, about contracts and things like that. Um, I'll just left that, leave that one hanging for you. Um, but he was really good to me. Um, I can remember... For example, I was number 57 and there was only 50 lockers. So that little corridor that ran um, from the change room to the to the um, committee room, there was, oh, yes. eight, there was eight pegs yeah. and I was the second last peg. This is 1964, mm-hmm. 63 or 4. So when I came to training, I was on that peg. And then on the other side of the little aisle, which was only about a metre wide, <laughs> There was probably six or seven guys with their clothes on the ground. So this night I get there and there's a note on my peg. Noel, can you come up and see me in the office? Graham. And they've all read it because I got there a bit late. Won't see him again. Because <laughs> there was a big rumour. Um, uh, I heard about the fantasy that uh, when you went to Graham's office, he had a trapdoor. And he pulled the trap door and you went down a big slide and you ended up in the Yarra. And everybody <laughs> said, oh, he'll be in there. He'll be wet in a few minutes and all this. And I get, and it, all, all he wanted to do was invite my dad to the president's lunch two weeks later. And I get back there and all my clothes are on the ground. Oh. And there's four blokes fighting over the peg. Yeah. The coat hanger. <laughs> so that was, that was, uh, that, that was, that was Graham though, you know. Well, you then returned to Richmond later, uh, as an official in yeah. the late 70s. Graham would have still been there too. Now, what happened, um, I, went to, I went to Sandringham, tore hamstrings like you've never seen, went to Morty Alec, did the same thing, coached the under-19s for three years, wrote a letter to the committee at Morty Alec at the end of 74, told them, 15 pages it was, told them that what, what was happening around the club that they didn't know not, but not dobbing anybody in by the coach because mm. the players were fantastic, but they had no idea. They had two blokes, Wally, Wally Smith and the, and the president, Kenny Cornell, who could get $2 out of someone who was only willing to give 20 cents. <laughs> so they, they could raise money, and they were terrific blokes. So real, how you going, mates? And, um, they were, but they were smart business people, and um, I wrote them a letter, and the secretary, Alan Buckley, was a fantastic bloke. And they, I just said, well, why don't you, instead of just plugging away every year, put a plan in place to win a premiership in three years. Like, well, let's, 
that's set 1977 to win a premiership. And the word got around, so I, and they said, who's going to do all this? I said, well, I'll do it. And I went around and we sacked the coach, got Jeff Rosenau to coach, who had discipline, he was a policeman. He just didn't discipline the players, he disciplined the club. And um, we all got going really well, and um, we improved up to about fifth. The next year, we played Williamstown at Williamstown. We kicked 38 goals sure. to about 16. Peter Neville kicked 18 for the day. We thought we got the premiership won. We played Williamstown in the grand final. They beat us by 37 points. Uh, so the next year, we got a few more players. Um, and we won the premiership in 1977, like we planned. And I was at the footy the next week at Elsinwick, uh, uh, at Elsinwick Park. Uh, I'm at a grand final. Didn't know Graham was there. He was with Todd Shelton, and I jumped over the fence with my son, who was about seven, six. We having a kick half time. I went back and jumped back over the fence, and Graham was sitting right where I jumped over. And he says, "By geez, Cocker, you've done a good job down at Morty Alec. Would you like to see? Him? I'd like to see you in my office tomorrow at, at one o'clock for lunch." So I got in there, and his Neil Buzzy and his ex-teammate Gareth Andrews, who I didn't know, a few other people. Who's the GM? They're all, I think, yeah. They're all in there, and they said, "We want you to come and do this work." So I thought, "Yeah, okay." So I went and told Dad, and he went, oh, be careful, you've got two kids, you know, going into a volatile club, you're going into a volatile this, volatile, you know, be careful. So I rang Swabby up, who I'd had a little bit to do with, right. Alan. Yeah. And he was just the best bloke, um, as your dad had attest to, I'd reckon. Mm-hmm. And um, completely different to Graham. Um, oh. And he, he just said, hang on, don't do anything, there's going to be some massive changes. So he rang me in January and he said, um, they'll ring you in a couple of days, just take the job. So I did, and um, I was football secretary. Football and, secretary, um, right yeah. yeah. Football secretary, and there was Gareth Andrews came in, there was me, Jeanette Kerwood, who finished up Ben Shoes as PA, yeah. two girls, a part-time bookkeeper, and Norm Batty, who ran the boundary when Dad was playing, and that was it. Now, this I is different from the club secretary, isn't it, this role? Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I ran Richard the Doggett footy. Or someone like that. Nowadays, you're the footy manager. What's that, sorry? Nowadays, you'd be the footy manager. Understood, yeah. So instead of going to the games, mm-hmm. Trevor Lorcan, uh, Terry Lorcan, who is a policeman at Black Rock, who everybody sort of loved, he was the team manager on a Saturday, and I went recruiting. And I loved the recruiting. I thought this was great and had a bit of success the first couple of years with a few blokes. They thought this was all right. I was working in the same office as Sheeds. I, I moved out of the shed. I was in the shed first. Then I moved into the safe, which was an old safe of the river's lock. So I worked in there with Sheeds. And, of course, Sheeds was working as the promotions officer for I the it was BFL. Broom, I thought it was in a broom closet at one point. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Next to Charlie's room. Right. And which is a funny story anyway, but anyway, um, Shoes would be in there, you know, an hour a day, probably and be out doing clinics and sitting in the, in, uh, the AFL talking to Jack Hamilton and talking to Swabby and finding out what was going to happen because he found out early on that they were going to have a draft. There's going to no form fours were going to go out. Mm-hmm. So when he signed with Colin Stubbs at Essendon, he demanded that one of the things he wanted the full time recruiting blood. So um, he decided I would be the one. So I didn't want to go. We just won the premiership, uh, under 19s and seniors, and it was pretty happy. And I love working with Paddy. 1980, we're talking. Yeah, and I was, I was really happy working with uh, Wayne Walsh. But <laughs> when he was appointed, I said to Doctor Wills, "Oh, not Wayne Walsh, no." And we became really good friends. And he was a bloody good coach. Paddy went on to be seconds coach because Tony wanted him to be seconds, co- uh, seconds coach when Tony was coaching. That was 79. So I started off with Barry Richardson as coach. And then Tony came in in 79, and, well, he was just something I'd never seen before. Like, he was the most prepared, bloody, bloody good coach, Tony. And uh, he was he was so prepared about everything he did. Um, uh, he just knew the opposition back to front. Um, I'd never seen anything like that before, you know. And I learned a lot off him going, sort of, I used to go to match committee and take minutes and um, get food for the boys. You know, there'd be 
Alan Cook, Johnny Robertson, Eric Leach, me, oh, someone else, can't remember. And um, you'd just sit there and just learn, just learn what they were looking for, learn what they wanted in, uh, for the years ahead. And Tony was really particular about how he wanted to play and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, Did you recruit doing that, to Richmond? So, sorry. Did you, do, did you recruiting do recruiting? Yeah, recruiting? I used to go out on a Saturday and do the recruiting. And um, the, my first recruit, like other than blokes out of the uh, out of the zone, my first recruit was Brian Brian Taylor. Really? Yeah. Where'd yeah, you find Brian him? Was, Brian was sixteen when he played for Western Australia in the what they call the Teal Cup. Mm-hmm which is now called the Under-18 Championships. It was called the Teal Cup. It was under-17. It was playing, played in Adelaide. I don't think anybody from Richmond had ever been to the previous ones, and uh, Victoria didn't take it seriously. Um, and I was sitting at Norwood Oval. You've been to Norwood Oval? Never, never. Well, it's a very small oval, much bigger than Glenferry Oval, mm-hmm. and it's got a straight side down the western side, and it's a brick wall mm-hmm. where the players run out from the, the um, home, home team run out. Mm-hmm. And it's a brick wall, so you're sitting, looking over, and if you're sitting in the front row, you can just see the boundary line below you. That's how close it is. So, and the opposition come out behind the right-hand goals, which is the southern goal, so I'm sitting up there on my own, probably had a suit on. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I heard this rumbling behind the goals, and I thought, oh, it's a tractor coming out. And all of a sudden, the Western Australians ran out, and I just went, holy (laughs) hell. There was John Ironmonger, who was six foot eight, and oh. all these blokes ran out. And I thought, what? And the Vicks ran out, and they just looked like a scrubby sort of mob. Anyway, Western Australia, under a coach called Jack Ivankovic, who was a big Slav bloke, who I was then recruited to be a recruiting bloke in Perth, mm-hmm. they won 27 goals to five. And Brian Taylor took 18 marks playing centre-half forward, and he was under 16. And I went, Who's this bloke? So the next day they played. It was a Friday. The Saturday they played. It wasn't didn't go for a week like it did in the future. Now it goes for about five weeks. The next day they played down at um, Thurber West Torrens, and they played West Australia played New South Wales. Brian played centre half forward, and a bloke called Edgar Gunn worth looking up. Right. Edgar Gunn. Yeah. Edgar Gunn played, he was a blonde, sort of anemic looking guy, played centre half back for New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And you would have seen the the um, the highlights of Knights versus Vanderhaar. Yes, yes. Well, it was Knights versus Vanderhaar before Knights versus Vanderhaar. I think they both took nearly 20 marks each. Right. And I just went, what? You know, and you couldn't get. Edgar Gunn, because he was tied at Geelong, come from Jerilbury or one of those places. Never got to Geelong because he got killed in the car smash. So I just went back to the club and I said, look, I know I'm only young. I know I I haven't been interstate before, but there's a kid playing for Western Australia. He's only played, I think, maybe a game with East Fremantle after getting transferred from Subiaco. Unsight unseen. I think we should get him. And uh, Graham said, well, I'll put the test on you. So I think it was Okta. Mm. Oh, I'm sure it was Okta. But he went over with someone. I don't think it was Graham. It might have been Gareth. Mm-hmm. And they went over and signed him up and brought him back and put him in with a lady um, in South Yarra called Ida Reid, whose son mm. was coaching the Victoria under-15 team at the time. He was one of my spotters. And Ida Reid just loved Brian. And I went around to see him about three months later and I said, how's it going, Ida? She was about 80. And she said, I, he's going terrific, but he's never eaten a vegetable. <laughs> and I don't think he still has... I, I reckon if you, <laughs> if you rang Tanya Nows, he's never eaten one since, I don't reckon. But he was my first recruit. Did you ever come across a player who you would go into bat for and say, this guy is the one we need to go after? But it either never eventuated for Richmond or perhaps he never achieved the height that you thought he had the potential to? How long have you got? Is that... What perc- you got an what, hour? What percentage of players <laughs> is that out of interest? Oh, look, <laughs> it, it all depends because what happened in between 1986 and um, sort of 19... Oh, a bit earlier than that, 84, 85... 
to about 1990, you had restrictions in Western Australia where you could only get guys that were either fulfilled two, two criteria, 23 years of age, 110 games, or played in the waffle for five years. So it was really, there was blokes you wanted to get, but you just couldn't get them. And South Australia, every time you went to get to South Australia, they put them on a retention scheme, which was funded by the public. Mm-hmm. And like blokes like McIntosh, um, who played at Norwood, uh, McDermott, who played at Glenelg, they just got hundreds of thousands of dollars out of the um, out of the uh, retention fund. Right. So you had to take, and, and of course, the under nineteens were still going. Hmm. Metropolitan zoning didn't go out till ninety one. Country zoning went out in eighty six. So and everybody went around the country zoning and got the players that were were coming up. I was at Essendon at the time. And you just go around and pick about four or five guys out that were going to be okay, take them so they wouldn't be in the draft in the next couple of years. And then you had Tasmania, New South Wales, the southern part of New South Wales was Sydney Swans. Mm-hmm. So you had the leftovers that no one wanted in South Australia, couldn't get anybody out of Western Australia unless they filled the criteria. Northern Territory was okay, and most of Queensland was the Brisbane Bears. So that, if you look up the draft in the 80s, there's, we took 12 blokes the year we take, took James Hurd. We took 12 blokes that year. And Hurd is the only one that made it. Yeah. So, you, you know, you had all these guys that you thought were going to be right. You pushed them up. And, of course, you know, you, you're pushing them into teams like you're bringing blokes to Richmond in 1980-81. I left at uh, the end of 81 nearly. Mm. And then through, you go to Essen and the, you know, they should have won probably four or five premierships, won two um, injuries and stuff, stuff that up. But it was very hard to get bikes to break into those teams. And, you know, that sort of half answers your yeah. question. But yeah. the one that really got away from, um, from Essendon was Craig Bradley. And that was all to do with Carlton paying $100,000 for Bradley. Kernahan, Motley, Dorotich, oh, Naley maybe. And Essendon's top player was probably getting 60 and we'd won two premierships and the club said, no, we're not going to pay someone 100000 when we're playing Tim Watson 65 or whatever it was, I don't know. But, you know, that was Essendon. You know, and mm. Richmond were a bit different to that. Mm. Like Graham was more or less, Jesus, let's go and get this bike, doesn't matter what it costs. Like I remember him ringing me up one day, it was 79 early in the season and Carlton had just got a guy uh, sorry Hawthorne had just got a guy from North Melbourne he was a ruckman I can't think of his name came from South Australia I think just a, a, an okay player and they'd paid 80 grand for him because it was transfer fees in those days and Groves rang up and he said look ring up um, Ivan Moore because he'd ring you five five times a day with five different things to do, and you'd work out which ones were the ones he'd follow up on, and you wouldn't do the rest. He didn't have the time. So I rang up Ivan Moore, who I knew a little bit, and I said, oh, Ivan, would you let Alan Gade go? Because you'll need... You know, I just said you'll need the money because to pay for this other guy, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, we wouldn't let Alan Gade go. And I said, oh... And I'd seen Barry Rowling's play against Morty Alec at about 1984. Uh, not 74, mm-hmm. he's playing for Moe in a practice match, and I thought, he's that lucky, he just dominated, I thought, so I just remembered the name, yeah. and when he came to Hawthorne, I said, oh, that's that bloke that played in that <laughs> practice match, but he's 24 or 25, so I, I didn't know he had a Negro Rico at, at, at the time I rang up, and I said to Ivan, I think it was Ivan, I said, Ivan, well, what about Barry Rollings? He said, oh, yeah, we'd look at that. So I said, I'll get back to you. So I rang Graham straight back. I said, oh, look, they wouldn't let Alan go go. But I mentioned Barry Rollings to him. He said, what, you mentioned Barry Rollings? I said, what about it? He said, I love him. <laughs> he said, oh, no. He said, oh, I've seen him play you know, down at Maui. I watched him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, can we get Barry Rollings? And then he said, oh, he's had a knee reconstruction. I said, oh, shit. So Brucey Seymour, who was yes. a real good mate of mine, Bruce and I went around to see Barry Rollins that night. Great guy, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And I picked him. He was chairman of recruiting, yeah. like on the board. And we went round. We went round, sat outside the Hawthorne Footy Club, and when Barry came out, we grabbed him, put him in the car, and said, hey, listen, <laughs> this is a situation. They might let you go. And he was shattered. 
but he thought, shit, you know, I'm 29, yeah. 28, 29, and they're after me. I might have a future there, you know. You know, so, sort of explain what was going on, and so it was about round four, and um, he was playing in the twos. So I think Graham must have said to Tony, "Do go and watch him play." So he watched him play down South Melbourne that Saturday in the twos, and said, "Yeah, got to get him." Moved okay, so we got him, and he won the best of Ferris. He did. He became a champion player, and um... played at least thirty-five. Yeah, <laughs> evergreen. Well, I just, I just sort of, I read something the other day. He's seventy this year. Is he really? Yeah. Looks good. For I'm seventy five. He's only five years younger than me. I can't believe it. I guess you'd also put on your list of successes, Michael Long. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, before that, uh, uh, the funny one before Longy. Uh, we'll keep on Richmond. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, no, but I, I was intrigued to know whether or not. Um, I mean, at Richmond there was Rioli, and that's and those sort of players. So I wonder if. Did you always have in your mind about the Indigenous players when you were well, talking? Well, the only one that, um, how I got involved with that was through Mel Brown. Oh, yes. And, and yeah. he was great mates with Sheeds, and Sheeds used to stay at, with Brownie and Kay uh, when he went over there. He used to go over there a fair bit, you know, with, um, it went at Richmond doing clinics and coaching buddy teams that Brownie would bring him over and get Sheeds to take Perth for training or South Fremantle for training. So I got to know him pretty well, and I really liked him. And um, so I stayed at his house a couple of times, and he said to me one day, he said, look, we train Friday nights. I said, what? Yeah, you train Friday nights. He said, come down with me on Friday night. So I went down with him on the Friday night. With, uh, he said, now, I want you to go into the boxing ring. There's a guy in there called Laurie Flanders. He's an ex-light heavyweight champion of Australia or something, and he'll be boxing there with a few blokes introduce yourself and tell him why you're there don't just walk in so Laurie lovely fellow just said look sit down there and uh, after a couple of spars in walks Morris Rioli I'd, I'd seen him play and he was five foot seven about my height well he just it was like watching a professional fight he was unbelievable like he was he was hitting blokes like he was hitting Laurie Flanders in the in the in the helmet, like they they didn't have a thing with the gloves on where you hit in the bag. Oh yeah, they had a they had a spar. Right. And Jacko was playing there at the time, and Jacko's and I knew Jacko really well. And I said to Jacko outside, I said, "What about Morris Rioli?" He said, "Mate, he's the toughest bloke. You should want to see him tackle." So I started watching him, and I started going around on a Sunday when I was there. I'd go around to Morris's place, and we'd sit there. And it ta- you know, I'd ask him a question, and it'd take him a long time to answer. And by the time he answered, I'd be sort of asking the next question, as I thought he hasn't heard me. And we became really, really good friends. Mm. And um, I just said to Graham and Octa, and I think it was Richard Doggett or something at the time, to um, Gareth had gone, just said, "Look, this this guy's got everything. You just don't don't believe me. Just ring up Brownie." So um, I'd gone to. I'd gone to Western when Morris came, um, and I didn't see much of him till he got in financial trouble. Anyway, Morris ended up with nothing, and he was going to go to Sydney. Right. We thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's not going to be good for Morris. So Shudes and I went around his house. Well, I think it was in East Melbourne or something like that, and he wasn't home. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and we sat there till about 11, half past 11, and Morris came home. We let him go inside, and we walked over and knocked on the door, and... He virtually just hugged Shudes and I, just hugged us, and said, what are you, you guys doing? He said, well, just come to help you, Morris. What's going on? He said, oh, I'm, not, I'm in trouble. Um, I've got nothing. He had nothing in the house. And poor old Mori, we, we just said to him, and I think Shudes must have rang up oh, whoever it was, Kevin Dixon or whoever was running at the time, said, listen, just pull your heads in and get him back, get him running, don't let him go to Sydney, and he stayed in Melbourne. He did. He stayed with Richmond, didn't he, for a bit? He was just a sensational bloke and a sensational player. In '93, when Gavin Wanganui won the Brownlow and we were in the grand final, I was walking on stand and I looked in. He was great. He was Morris in the TAB, hmm. and I stood there watching him. And he turned around with a big smile on his face and he just walked over with tears running down his face. And he said, oh, "I haven't seen anybody here today that I know, and I'm presenting the me- I'm presenting the medal." I said, "Well, you'll be presented to an excellent bloke," and he did presented it to um, 
Longy. Michael Long. Do you associate yourself more with Essendon or Richmond out of interest? Uh, look, probably Essendon because of the fact I was there for 16 years right. and I'm back there now doing some work. I've oh, been good. back five years doing work with Merv Kane or Merv's oh, been... Well, back in Richmond. Back. Oh, sorry, back in Melbourne. Uh, uh, Essendon now, yeah. Yeah, he's doing... It. Well, it's all... Nothing's happening now, but he was going back. And Adrian Dodoro asked me to come back when they had the problem. They lost all their draft picks, and they just said, mm. oh, I was living up here, doing the same work with Collingwood, just watching Vision. The Vision's unbelievable now. Like, you just, I can log on to any player, and I don't know if you've heard about Scout. Oh, right. Was it like a central place, is it? Yeah, it's run by um, Champion, oh, Champion yeah, yeah. Data. And I can log on to any player in Australia where the Champion have taken the film yep. and then done the... the um, the stats with and right. combine the stats. I can just log on to anybody, you know. That's and a just bit different watch. than before. Uh, oh, no? so it was amazing! It was <laughs> unbelievable. From the comfort of your home. Yeah, it's fantastic. I just put it on the big screen, and yeah, you know, that's, that's been really good. But oh, you know, getting a bit old to do it now. But um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's well, we we look, we we um, we can associate with you with Richmond. We'll take you as a Richmondite. Yeah, well, I, well, well I, I couldn't have been more happy when they won the two premierships, Christ. And, you know, especially with Damien Arbrick. Like, I, I got Damien to come to to, um, to Essendon. I'll wrap up the interview and I'll say, on behalf of all the Richmond supporters, Noel, perhaps those who saw you play in the reserves or, <laughs> or perhaps those, you know, who just uh, happened to see when you were uh, the football manager or interstate, you're sort of dropping by, thank you for your contribution to Richmond. And also thank you to your father's contribution to Richmond as well. I appreciate that, Rhett.